Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. We're in a section where Paul is warning the people about a heresy that has already infiltrated the church of Colossae, and he's warning them about it exploding in some sense, and he's warning them, how do you handle that when it's already got started in your church? So he's writing to them. I'd like to also say that uh, we have an interesting thing going on today, and I want to just comment on it a little bit. As you know, we uh, Israel has declared war on Hamas on the Gaza Strip. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Now, we at this church are what we call pre-tribulationists. We believe that Jesus Christ will come for the church in the air. And that particular time is not predicted. There are no prophetic warnings about exactly when that coming to meet us and snatching us away, which we use a Latin word, rapture of the church, we do not know when that's going to happen. That is, uh, suddenly will happen. The Lord will come. The dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are remain will be caught up with them in together in the air. Following that, there will be a sign, or there will be the nations of the world, probably the Western world, will sign a treaty with Israel and guarantee freedom for seven years. During that seven years of peace, Israel will have the freedom to erect a temple in Jerusalem. If you know anything about the situation there now, you know that the Mosque of Omar is sitting on that spot. For that temple to be built either near it or on the spot itself, for, any, for Israel to make any move to do that, would call for an all-out jihad war. So it's going to be a pretty binding, pretty important uh, treaty. As you know, the Israel is outnumbered a thousand to one. Where it lies, it's not a very big country. Uh, it's a very small country, and the Arab nations are against it. Well, this last week, they suddenly were bombed. Over 600 people, Israelis, were killed, last, last report. And uh, Israel has declared all-out war, which means going into Gaza Strip and cleaning it up. Israel also has an enemy to the north called uh, the Hezbollah. So they have the Hamas to the south, the Hezbollah to the north, all terrorists. It's an interesting time, isn't it? We have all-out war in Europe, Ukraine and Russia. We have China, 
with their eyes on Taiwan. And we have other places where war could break out. Here's what Jesus said to his disciples, Matthew 24, verse 15. Therefore, let me go earlier, let me read it at verse 4. Jesus answered and said to them, See that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars, rumors of wars. See that you're not frightened. Why? For those things must take place. And that is not yet the end. Go to Luke. Same, same uh, place. Luke. And we'll take a look at verse 10 in chapter 21, verse 10. Luke 21, verse 10. Then he continued by saying to them, his disciples, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes in various places, plagues, famines, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, you're going to suffer. But all these things have to take place. If you're thinking there's going to be peace on this earth, you're very misled. It's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. I hate to be a pessimist. And I'm not a pessimist, really, because you know why? I've got a hope that we're near the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I was tempted to say this morning to this crowd, all of you that want Jesus Christ to come right now, raise your hand. Right, don't do it. <laughs> because if you're honest, some of you aren't ready. But because of the movement, you would raise your hand. Are you really ready? Are you really ready and really praying? As God said in Psalms, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. When you pray for the peace of Jerusalem, what are you praying for? You're praying that all these events will take place and the end will be the kingdom, right? And what did Jesus say in the Lord's Prayer? Pray thy, what? Kingdom come. And what are you praying for? You're praying for judgment on this earth and you're praying for peace in the millennial or thousand year reign of Jesus Christ. These things have to happen. These things have to happen. Now, before the rapture can occur, from the Israel point of view, if you were in Israel and a believer, you would have to be a war so bad that you're seeking a treaty from somebody else to, to assure you that you can have peace. Listen, they're war-weary over there. If you're a believer in the Western world, what's got to take place before the rapture happens or before the tribulation happens? It's got to be apostasy in the church. That is... The so-called church is drifting away from biblical truth. 
and is not accepting biblical truth anymore. I'm here to tell you that's happening in your very fright in front of your face. You have a major denominations that are abandoning morality and are pushing homosexuality down the throats of their churches by allowing women and lesbians and homosexuals to be a part of the leadership of the church. Read Romans 1. How far down can you go? That's the bottom. When God judges a nation, he turns it over to their own lusts. And he lets those lusts go rampant so that you have sin of homosexuality. Now I say that, I could throw me in jail over that because in some circles that's hate speech. That's coming. That's coming. How can a few percentage of this population of America be allowed to run over our country? Unbelievable. So Paul has given a warning now to the church of Colossae in Colossians chapter 2. And he's saying, here's, what, here's how you got to handle this heresy. He's already been talking about it, but he kind of reiterates it again. And he begins with their eternal salvation in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. You want to defeat apostasy? You want to turn it down? This is one of the ways to do it. Go back and remember your own salvation. This is the second time in this book that he's talked about salvation. Look at chapter 1, verse 21 and 23. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, that is toward the Lord, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, the death on the cross, in order to present before to present you before him and blameless and beyond reproach. That's your salvation. He may have grown up in a Christian home like I did, and I didn't ever deny the deity of Christ. I never denied the veracity of the word of God. Never denied there was a God. Never denied any of those things. Yet in many ways, mentally, and in my own nature, I was alienated from the truth. And I had to come to a place where I received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Some of you can tell the day or the hour, and that's great. I can't. I, I, I believe it happened my first year in Bible college when I finally came to the truth that I was saved forever. Up till then, when anything went wrong, I accepted Jesus Christ. I don't know how many times I accepted Jesus Christ. But one time I came to the grip with the fact that Jesus saved me for all eternity, over and out, personally. Now he says in this verse, <coughs> as you have received Christ Jesus. The word received is just a common word 
like receiving instructions from teachers, and our salvation was a gift, a miraculous gift from God. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. Most of you are familiar with that, but if you're not, turn there. And if you do not have that underlined in your Bible, underline it now. You should underline your Bible. It's, not, it's the message that's sacred, not the book. It's the message. Here we read, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, or not the result of works, that's so that no one may boast. So receive the good word. You receive Christ. That's a definite point in your life. You didn't get salvation by osmosis. It just didn't seep and creep in you because you were in a church where you sought the word. There was a time when you had to come to grips with your own sin and the Lord Jesus Christ. Kind of interesting. I went through just a little bit how often uh, the word received is used. And I'm going to go through it rather rapidly this morning. 1 Corinthians 15.51 Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which you also receive in which you stand. Galatians 1.8 As we have said before, so I say now again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, how are you to handle it? What does it say up there? Oh, you didn't say up there. He's to be accursed. If you're in a church and they're not preaching the gospel of grace through faith in Christ alone, you're in a church where the message is accursed. My question is, what are you doing there if you're a believer in Jesus Christ? I don't think... We're in an era where we ought to play games, do you? Look at uh, Philippians 4.9. The things which you've learned and received and heard from me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. 1 Thessalonians 2.13. For this reason we also thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as it was as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, also performs its work in you. A couple more. First Thessalonians 4.1. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received instruction from us, you ought to walk and please God just as you actually do walk, and that you excel still more. Second Thessalonians. Now we commend you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who is unruly in life and not according to the attrition which you see from us. If there's a brother and he's unruly and he's not working with the Lord, avoid him. Not to be a part of it. It's walking with the Lord. Why? Because you, first thing you know, you may pick up things you don't need to be picking up from them. So let's review the elements or the components that make up personal salvation. 
Overall, we call it regeneration. According to Louis Burkhoff in his theology, we read this. Regeneration consists of the implanting of a, the new spiritual life in man in a radical change of governing disposition of that soul. That's a theological definition. And the example is the Apostle Paul on his way to Damascus to arrest believers, he suddenly was struck down by the Lord, and the Lord said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now how was Paul persecuting Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is in heaven. And uh, he's now being accused. Paul's being accused of persecuting, persecuting him. I'll tell you why. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you belong to, you can answer here, by the way. You belong to who? I, did I, am I missing something? Didn't anybody answer? You belong to? Jesus. You persecute Jesus, or you persecute his followers, and you persecute Christ. And there will be payment to pay eventually. Eternity in hell, and suffering maybe even here. So G <coughs> regeneration <coughs> is, a, is a change, a radical change in disposition. Once you hated Jesus, you didn't pay any attention to him, and now suddenly you love him, and you want to serve him with all your heart. That's salvation. That's re regeneration. In fact... Here's how he put it to Nicodemus, a teacher of the Jews. He said, you must be what? Born again. Born over. That's born over. Leper can't change his spots. Only if he's born over. So this regeneration consists of repentance. As Millard Erickson puts it, repentance is the godly sorrow for one's sin together with the resolution to turn from it. Sometimes the word repentance stands alone. They repented. Speaking of their salvation. Other times, faith stands alone. But whenever these two words, repentance and faith, appear together, repentance is always first. You have to come to grips with the fact that you're a sinner. And you have to come to grips with the fact that you're not going to heaven as a sinner. There has to be a radical change, a new birth. And then faith. As uh, Roland McCune says, Saving faith is the knowledge of, assent to, and an unreserved trust in the accomplished redemption of Christ as revealed in the scripture. Faith consists of knowledge. But it's more than mere knowledge. It's more than just knowing Christ died for me. There's some other elements involved here. Faith has an intellectual assent to biblical truth. 
And faith has a radical persuasion of con or conviction of biblical truth. Let me illustrate it like Strong does in his theology. Probably one of the best I've read over the years and shared it many times and some of you have heard it. Let's put it this way. You're in an island in the middle of a raging river. And the water is rising. And you know you can't swim to either shore. So you look around that island and you see a boat, a rowboat. And you have knowledge of that boat. It's there. So you have the knowledge and then you go over there and you look at that boat. And you look it over. And you come to the conclusion that that boat can actually take you to the shore. Knowing there's a boat there. And knowing that that boat is able to take you to shore, does that save you? I mean, uh, I know you're not engineers, but will that save you? No. no, there you go. There's life here after all. The point is, it's not until you get into the boat that that boat will save you. So faith has these elements. I know... There is the Lord, and I know that he died for me, and I assent to it, I agree with it, but it's not till I convict myself or convince myself or persuade myself that he will save me. That's eternal salvation. And so just joining a church or being baptized isn't going to save you. And then it says in, in this passage, it says to us, you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord. And that's an interesting way they put it in the original language. If I were to translate that literally from the original, it would go like this. The translation should be the Messiah, Jesus, the Lord. That really puts it down there, doesn't it? Messiah comes from the Old Testament, Meshua, which comes from the anointed one, Christ is a Greek English translation. The Messiah, Jesus the Lord. It also uh, cures up a problem that this heresy had, which was in Colossians. They believed that Jesus was so holy and so God that he really wasn't human. How can he really be human? But he is the Messiah, the anointed one of Israel. He is Jesus, the one who walked on the earth, our Savior. Plus, he is also the Lord. You can't separate them out. We had controversies about lordship salvation here and there. But Jesus is the Lord. How can you deny that? How can you be saved and say Jesus is not the Lord? How can you be saved and deny his deity in essence? He is the Savior. So walk in him. That's a present imperative. Walk like he walked, okay? Walk in that manner. He is the Lord. The present imperative means keep on walking in him. Does your life show that you belong to the Lord? Does my life show? 
Can people say and look at you from across the street, next door neighbor, and say, you know what? They're, those people walk with the Lord. Those people love the Lord. I can see it in their farming. I can see it in their business. I can see it in their family. They walk with the Lord. Walk in him. According to the scripture in John 15 verse 4 says, Abide in me and I in you. John 17 23, I in them and you in me. How can you have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit along with Jesus Christ in us and it not show? How can you do that? I don't think you can. And if it doesn't show, maybe you need to re-examine your own relationship to Jesus Christ. Next, in the next verse, he says this to us. Having been firmly rooted and now built up in him and established in your faith just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Having been rooted. Now here's the way I always looked at that verse and I had to change a mind here in the last week. I always thought of it being rooted is that we were saved, the seed and the roots went down as we grew in grace. That's the way I took that verse. But upon closer look, that's not what it says. It's a, in the Greek language, it's a, what we call a perfect tense. It means an action that happened in the past and is now currently the same or currently going on. So here's what he's saying. When you were saved, you were rooted. When you were saved, you and I received everything we needed to take us from this moment throughout all eternity. Nothing needs to be added. You don't need to be baptized, doesn't need to be added. You don't need a baptism of the Holy Spirit experience. You don't need a second blessing. You don't need to talk in tongues. You don't need any of that. You have received all you need from the moment of your salvation all the way to eternity. I, I can still remember when I bought a computer for the first time. All I wanted was a word processor. And, then, and a Bible program that it could implement in the word processor. When I got the thing home, I began to look at the book. This thing did all kinds of stuff. It all came in one package. I don't even use all that package yet. I get confused once I leave the word processor. But my point is, when you receive Jesus Christ... As your personal savior, you got the entire package. It takes you a lifetime and an eternity to figure it all out, to realize all the blessings that are yours at, from that moment on. I think what's the sad thing is, how many people really know? For most people, salvation is a fire escape from hell. 
Do you realize that you don't have to worry? Do you realize that God will take you all the way to the end, all the way to eternity? All you have to do is believe and follow. Do you realize that as you read this book, you find out all kinds of things about God and it becomes an encouragement to you? And the more you know, the more you want to know, and the more you get to know, the more you see you still need to know. It'll take all eternity for you to figure this out. And when I meet you on the corners of glory at Gold Street and Silver, we'll say, I'll say to you, can you believe what we saw? Can you believe the glory of God? Say, no, right, I can't. It's amazing. A million years later, we'll say the same thing again. It's one continuous revelation of God to his servants to show us how great he is. It's unbelievable. And we got it all at one moment in time at our salvation. How much do you know you got? And how much are you practicing what you know? You've been rooted. Furthermore, you've not only been rooted... <clears throat> The second characteristic is now being built up in him. Now this word being built up is not an imperative and it's not a perfect, it's a present. Continually be built up. We used to sing a chorus, I haven't heard it recently, every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Maybe some of you know that's that one. And that's true. If you're really walking with the Lord, every day ought to be better than the day before as you grow and build up in him. Now, I can't say that has always been true in my life, but I can tell you this. I can tell you I'm a lot better off than, and know more than I used to know. I don't know everything I should know, but I know one thing. I'm better than what I was before. You build up in him. As you read the word of God. Now the building up in here is layer upon layer upon layer upon layer. We could call it, like in our vernacular, we could call it stories. Is your Christian house, your personal life, where are you? Still on the first floor, second floor, fifth floor? Where are you? How much are you taking in and building up? And it's kind of interesting that as we build this up, it is dependent upon God to do the building. We rely on him. Turn with me to 1 Peter 2, verses uh, 2 and 3. 1 Peter 2, 2 and 3. When you get there, you'll realize this is a very common passage if you haven't figured it out already. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2 and 3. First Peter 2, verse 2 says, Like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Now this is not talking about new believers desiring the milk. Of course they should. It's talking about all of us. I'm a father of five children, 
And my wife and I have raised these children. And uh, in the early years, uh, we found out one thing that a newborn baby wants what? Yeah, you figure it out. Milk. You can go put a dancing thing over the crib. <clears throat> you can shake all kinds of things in front of them. Talk, baby talk, goo, ga, ga, whatever. That isn't going to help. There's one thing they want, and they want it, and they won't be happy till they get it, and that is milk. That's what he's talking about here. As a baby desires that milk, you ought to be desiring the milk of the word. Should we raise our hands? How many of us are reading the word every day? And not just reading it, to be reading it, but honestly to say, you don't have to read a whole Bible that morning, but reading the Bible and asking yourself, Lord, what do you have in here for me? What do you have in here for me? And reading. A baby wouldn't get along without milk every day. Why would we get along without the Word of God? And taste His goodness. Furthermore, one is to follow wholesome doctrine in order to grow spiritually. <clears throat> What do you know about the doctrines of the faith? What do you know about theology, the doctrine of God, his omniscience, his omnipotence, his incomprehensibility? What do you know about these things about God? What do you know about Jesus Christ, his relationship to the Father, that he is 100% God and 100% man, and there's no division in his personality? What do you know about the Holy Spirit and that he too is a person and not some influence but has all the characteristics of God the Father and God the Son? What do you know about the Trinity? What do you know about the second coming of Jesus Christ? What do you know about the doctrine of the church? What do you know about these things? You know you need to know that. And the next line is you need to be established in your faith. The faith. Why do we have Bible studies? Why do we have Sunday school or Bible worship hours? Why do, I, why do we meet with men? Why do I meet with men? Why do we have ladies Bible studies? Why do we have these things? So that we can establish you in the faith. So when a, when a heresy comes. Or a heretic comes, you can spot him right off the bat because he doesn't conform to the words of this truth and the doctrines and the teachings that come from it. People hear doctrine and they go, oh, that's dry. I can't think of anything that's richer. I remember going to Bible college and, and seminary and I just couldn't wait to really study the doctrines of the faith and learn more about God. His word, how he interacts with all of us. Every believer has been taught, establish your faith just as you were instructed. Somebody taught you. Somebody taught me. 
Bricks can be laid on bricks and you can build a structure. But if it's not cemented with truth, it's a shaky building. Here's what God told us in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe some of the things I command you. Is that what it said? I misread that, huh? All. It all means all. That's all all means. All of it. All of it. And you're to do this with overflowing gratitude. That's a fourth characteristic and another active participle. The word overflowing is a good translation of the verb abounding. The believer is to walk the life with an exuberant attitude of thanksgiving expressed in inner joy. Now, you know, you, we have farmers here, and you, you farmers are aware of this, that one of the characteristics of farmers is they complain a lot. Is that, would you say that's probably a, a good characteristic? Boy, it's quiet. <laughs> well, you're not guilty farmers of only being the ones who complain a lot. It's a, it's a human nature thing. But what, is, what, what happens to a person when he really knows God? What happens to a person when he really knows what God has done for him? What, what kind of disposition would you have if you really loved God? Well, I'll tell you what. Turn with me to 13 chapter, the 13th chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians. And let's look at verse 4. But I'm really interested in the last line of that section, verse 7. It'll be on the board, but I'll read the first few. Here's what genuine love is. If you complain, who are you and I complaining against? Who? Now, I, I, I'm willing to let you out early, but I'm not until you give me an answer. <coughs> who? God. You're complaining against God. Is that not correct? Here's what he says. Love is patient. Your combine broke down yesterday in the middle of harvest. Test. Love is kind and not jealous. Somebody sings better than you. Somebody does a work better than you. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It doesn't seek its own. It's not provoked. Doesn't get provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Oh, so they did me wrong. I'm not going to worry about that. 
Why? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. What? I'll repay. That's not your business to repay. That's God's business. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness when they say, you know, they're getting what they deserved. I felt that way when the University of Colorado played Oregon. They're getting what they deserve. No. Wrong attitude. But rejoices with the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. And here's what I was really after. Hopes all things. So it's going bad. It goes bad with all of us. It's a part of life. We live under Murphy's Law. We live in a cursed world. It's going to go bad. Things aren't always going to go good. But we have hope. So there's a bad war in Palestine. There's a bad war in Ukraine. They're suffering in Africa. They're coming over the border by the thousands. There's trouble in Taiwan. We're lacking leadership in our own country. Immorality is rampant. <clears throat> Can you believe the stores they're wiping out? By coming in and wiping out the stores? Guards standing there, unable to do anything. If they did something, they're liable to go to jail. How wrong can this be? But the believer has what? Hope. We have hope. And so he says, overflowing with gratitude. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 in everything, give thanks. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. There's a time in my life, my wife was killed in a car accident. Four kids. Youngest five months, oldest nine. People would come up to me, meaning well, and say, give thanks to the Lord. And I think in my mind, easy for you to say. But I couldn't give thanks until I came to the conclusion this was God's will. And I have a son who lost his wife due to ALS. And we've discussed that too. You can't give thanks for ALS, and you can't give thanks for losing a mate until you come and I come to the grips that this is God's will. In everything what? You can't just say, I thank the Lord for this. No. You have to rationalize this out with God and his word. He knows what he's doing. And he does what is best for all of us. Wind in the middle of harvest. Heavy rain in the middle of harvest. People on strike when you're trying to sell something. 
You want to fight heresy? It's what you do. Remember, you're rooted in, in all of it. You have it all. I have it all in Christ. I'm to build this up. I'm to build my faith through reading of his word, through prayer, through fellowship, through witnessing. And I'm to do all this with a sense of overabounding thanksgiving. And you can't do that unless you come to grips that this is God's will for you. That this is God's will for you. In everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. What's happening to you now? What's happening to you right now is God's will. And we need to make the adjustments. Because he's done it all for us. Let us stand for prayer. This morning, we have our communion service, and uh, at Countryside Bible Church, communion is an open service. It's not just for the members of the church. It's for anyone who believes that Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior, and they put their faith in him. And it's a reminder to us that Jesus Christ personally came, personally gave himself to die on a cross, and personally sacrificed himself and shed blood for our sins. We're to really get into this and really speak of this. We examine ourselves to see that we're really walking with the Lord. We're truly saved. And we're witnessing to those around us that we are saved and we're walking with them. There's an important part of this that says examine yourself. This is a time for self-examination between you and the Lord, not between you and the elders of the church, not between you and me, but between you and the Lord. Now maybe that'll work out that you have to go to someone else and straighten that out because we're not to carry these burdens against each other. We're not to be bitter. We have to deal with that. So as I pray and the men come forward to prepare the table, let's all with me examine our own hearts. I have to examine my heart too. And you and all of us together. And so that as we walk out of here this morning, we're in fellowship with Jesus Christ. And there's no one in this group that we have an angst with or a problem with. We've settled that. And if we have to settle that personally, let's do that. Let us pray. Father, we read in the scripture reading this morning that we have all sinned. Even as believers, if we say we haven't sinned, we're a liar. So we come to you, Lord, and we admit we, we have sinned. And we admit, Lord, that we're not what we ought to be, but we want to be what you want us to be. And we confess our sin to you, Lord, this morning.
And thank you, Lord, that you paid the price. No penance, no walking on coals, no lying on nails. We know on the basis of your word and on your grace and the debt you paid, you paid for the penalty of our sins. And so, Father, as we take of this service, may we really remember the cost of our salvation and the one who paid it. Thank you for his humility of leaving heaven in glory and not grasping the position that he is God, but became a man and humbled himself to death, even the death of the cross. Thank you, Father, for the hope you've given us. We praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat>